Open, outspoken. It's ophthalmology off the grid. An honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Today, our host, Dr. Gary Wirtz, talks to his colleague and friend, Dr. Jim Loden. The two share an honest conversation covering everything from business and finances to family and relationships. Dr. Loden, a second-generation ophthalmologist, talks about experiencing loss in early adulthood and how that shaped his approach to parenthood and what he's doing now to make sure he can pass down his life lessons to his two sons. Listen as Dr. Loden gets candid about his own experiences and offers advice on topics like managing personal finances, accepting failure, choosing a spouse, and learning to focus on things that matter most in life. Coming up on Off the Grid. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast produced by Bryn Mawr Communications and supported by advertising from Alcon. For a full listing of podcasts for eye care professionals, go to itube.net forward slash podcasts. That's itube, E-Y-E-T-U-B-E dot net. Welcome to another very special episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz. I'm so excited to be back doing podcasts. Um, especially because I, I'm, I'm getting to have a fantastic conversation, uh, especially tonight with Jim Loden. Uh, Jim and I go way back, and he's he's not too far away from Lexington, so Nashville is pretty close. We see each other at meetings and always are, are trading secrets. But more importantly, I think we we enjoy talking a little bit about our families and life. And I've gotten to know Jim a little bit uh, over the past uh, couple of years. Um, Jim. Before we kind of give away the secret of what this recording is about, um, I just want to thank you for, for coming on and, um, and spend a little bit of time with us. Gary, it's always a pleasure. I love being with you every time. We always have a great time, whether it's going out to dinner or just seeing each other at the hallways of meetings and uh, just always special conversations when we're together. Absolutely. And that's what makes ophthalmology so much fun is really having a second family, not just friends, but you kind of feel like you're you're part of a different family, don't you think? It's something I've seen for years. I grew up in an ophthalmology family and I see other second generation, third generation ophthalmologists. And the reason their children are going into it is because the parents loved it to begin with. Exactly. And that kind of ties into what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, we were at dinner, and, and I, I feel like the best podcasts come out of some dinner conversations that I've had, and this is no this is no different. Uh, Jim and I were at dinner. We Was it Mr. A's? Mr. A's in San Diego, yeah. Bill Wiley was sitting with us. And... That's right. Bill Wiley was there, and, and you, said, you said something that really caught me. You said you were writing a letter to your sons, and you pulled out your iPhone, and you started showing me some of the topics of the things that you are trying to really prepare your sons for. Uh, for adulthood. And you have two boys, if I'm correct. Is that right? That's correct. They're 14 and 12 now. And this is sort of like this coming of age document of all the tips and secrets and all the things that you wish you would have had when you were launched into adulthood. 
But unfortunately, that didn't happen. And will you just start by telling us a little bit of a background on on your story with your dad, who was a prominent ophthalmologist? Sure. So I was in my second year of medical school. And I have to remember, when you go to college, you're away from home the most most of the time. You don't really get a chance for, you come home, you go hunting and fishing with dad, but it's not time for him to yet download life's storybooks. And you're just not mentally ready for some of these stories to come out and your understanding's not really there. And then you're in med school, you're working so much, you're never there. And you're so distracted by just having to study constantly and take tests. So I was in my second year of medical school, came home Easter weekend, and I had an exam coming up on Tuesday, Gary, and I normally wouldn't have come home. I don't know. This is where Providence kind of comes in with things. And I decided I'd really done a great job of studying ahead. It was Easter weekend. I went home. I went turkey hunting with my dad. We didn't do any good. Freezing cold morning. Uh, But then had Easter Sunday lunch and shook hands with my father in our driveway. And I still remember the smile on his face. I remember the brown jacket and the cap he had on his uh, head. And I drove down the driveway from Nashville and headed back to Memphis to medical school. Finished up my exam on Tuesday, had a little insomnia, despite just, you know, you're usually dead tired after these exams, couldn't go to sleep. This was prior to cell phones and couldn't go to sleep and heard the phone ring at 10 o'clock at night. And I was like, well, that's not normal. Looked at the caller ID and it was my mom. And I picked it up. And she said, son, I need you to sit down. And I I immediately knew what had happened. My father had passed away. He had died on the treadmill that night running at the house. And she'd come home from a church event and found him lying dead beside the treadmill. And changed my life totally because then we weren't really ready to manage the practice. We ended up selling it, and it was a good thing we sold because this was 1990, Gary, prior to the Medicare big cuts on cataract surgery. So uh, you could still sell a practice for a good chunk of change. So this worked out well for mom and her estate. So we sold the practice, but I didn't get to go into my dad's practice. And as life's gone on since then, I'm 54 now. Dad died when he was 59. You know, it's kind of like the movies Forrest Gump, where you see Lieutenant Dan and his daddy died in the Revolutionary War. And then his dad died in the, I mean, child died in the Civil War and then World War One, and then World War Two. You know, Lieutenant Dan feels like it's his job to die. Well, that's my family's history of heart disease. My grandfather had his first heart attack at 42 and his dad before that died of a massive MI at 45. So I'm starting to think, am I going to get the time to download my book of life to my boys? And I have all these events that have occurred with business or dating or church in your faith. 
am I going to get to share those? So I've been writing these down in series of notes just constantly on my iPad and my iPhone. Every time something new comes up that I think is a really good idea or something really bad that's happened to me that I wish I'd handled differently so that if I'm not around when these situations come up, they can pull up this reference and say, what would dad have done in this situation? Jim, that's, this is almost too much for me to, to process right now. I mean, this is, this is um, first of all, you know, it seems like most of the time we just don't have the sense of urgency with which, and intentionality with which we think that life might not go on forever. And I think that the event that maybe took place in your, in your world um, with your father passing on far too soon was it, it focused your uh, sense of how much time do I have and how am I going to make an impact uh, with, the t- with the days that I have on this, on this world, knowing that we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Has that changed your focus of the way you spend your time? It's changed my focus with my children and it's changed how much consulting I'm doing uh, right now. I'm in this window of opportunity, Gary, where my oldest is 14. I've realized talking to my friends that uh, once he turns 16, he's not going to be at the house quite as much. <laughs> yep. And you, you, you've been through it with your kids already. Right. And that's going to change. And then within six years, five, actually just five years right now, he's going to be gone and off to college, the oldest. Two years later, my next one's going to be gone and off to college. And all of a sudden, my influential time with these children is really going to be gone. And when you look at the developmental stages of life, I probably had my biggest influence already with them being 12 and 14. Right. Uh, I just hope to cross a few T's, dot a few I's over the next couple years and hope to give them a sense of who they are and that they're God's children and where they want to go with their lives. So let's, let's jump into this book um, or this, this letter to your sons, because honestly, Jim, I think that this probably should be a book. And I'm going to just, before we, before I forget, I want to encourage you to consider this as a publication for more than just your own boys. I think it, it would be great to have for your own boys, but the lessons in in this, from what I have already you know gleaned, is, is much more widely applicable to a bunch of kids who maybe don't have dads or their dads didn't take the time to teach them these things. So um, I want to encourage you to consider this as a broader project. But let's just jump into some of the things that um, you feel like are are the maybe the highlights. I think they're all probably highlights, uh, or you wouldn't have written them down. But where do you feel like? Um, the lessons uh, that would be best for the for this episode. Where do, where do you think we should start? Yeah, let's start a little bit with the business aspects of it. Okay. You know, I, I was at ASCRS and I, I saw Roberto and Roger Zaldivar walking through the hallway talking together, son and dad. And I thought, man, that's something I'm jealous of, right? I didn't get to have that relationship with dad. That was special. If we look at where we are in the economic cycle right now, Gary, I've been through a couple of recessions in my life. I really, I, I remember my friends back in, I believe it was uh, 1980, one of my best friends lost his house. Uh, his dad was a builder. He got caught in the recession, had to move to a rental home. And 
I remember those experiences watching that as a child, but not really knowing it. And then seeing some of the events in the 80s and then again in 90 and then uh, had the dot com burst. I believe that was yeah around 2000. And then, of course, the big recession in 2007. We're at 10 years in this bull market right now. And if you read an article in Ocular Surgery News recently by Dick Lindstrom and one by John Pinto, both of them are really calling for a recession coming up and they have very valid reasons for it. I was sitting in the duck blind and one of my buddies who's in the financial services business said, hey, did you know the T-bill inverted this past week? And I was like, oh, well, uh, okay. What yeah, what, what, what does that mean? What does that have to do with the price of tea in China, right? Uh, so he shared with me that when the T-bill inversion occurs, the difference between the long-term and the short-term T-bill rates, on average, a recession uh, starts in 15 months, but that the S&P 500 will take a 23% run up right before the recession. So I'm starting to think about this. You know, we're in a long economic cycle. We're basically the longest bull market. This T-bill starting to invert right now. What do we do? How do we prepare for this? And one of the things is I went into the 2008 recession and was fairly well prepared. We weathered the storm fairly well. I just bought a practice. I just bought a piece of commercial real estate. I didn't have a lot of cash on hand, but everything was pretty good. But you see the market falling in it, and nobody knows what to do. Everybody is absolutely petrified and scared. You call your friend in the financial services business. They don't know what to do. They're, they're just kind of jelly-headed. You call accountants and you talk to multiple friends in the accounting business. You know, what should I do? Should I pay my house off and save the money? Should I, should I take my money out of the market? What do I do? Well, none of these people know the right answer. And let's just look at some data points here. The average recession only lasts 21 months. So you think about that. That's less than two years. You can weather a two-year storm, right? When you when you know that the real statistics mm -hmm. fall in long-term data is only 21 months, don't panic. You're going to come out of this, right? Unless you've just put yourself in a really bad spot. Also, this is really an opportunity. If you have funds in cash on hand, this is a time where you can make a 200 to 300% return over a 10-year time frame. And you need to have the guts to not do conservative things, but do crazy things. You go and buy undervalued real estate. You go and buy companies, stocks and companies that still have good portfolios and good product lines and have cash and are well-managed publicly traded companies, but they're just being knocked down by the economy right now. You look at what you could have bought Ford Motor for, for example, during the recession, you know, uh, multiple companies like that, that you could have just doubled, tripled, even more than that, maybe 10x your 
return on some of these companies. So you have to go into these recessions with that mindset. You have to look at just Google a graph of the Dow or the S&P 500. It always comes up after the recession. The one thing you can't do is panic and sell. You got to, especially with your parents, you know, you have to coach mom and dad if they're older and don't have a lot of financial knowledge, don't get scared and sell. You've got to stay in the market. The other thing is, is you can't time the market. You don't necessarily know where the bottom is going to be. And you just have to, once it drops, have some faith. I'm going to buy in. If it drops another 5 to 7%, okay, because I know over the next 7 to 10 years, it's going to still be up. So finances are one of the biggest issues where marriages break up. So I always think when I'm giving advice to young people, if I can give you advice where you can just say, hey, I'm going to do something here to make my family more stable, It's a good thing for marriages. It's a good thing for families. And uh, you look at even Warren Buffett and CNBC said, what would you do with your money if you didn't have anything, if you didn't have Berkshire Hathaway? Said I'd index it in an S&P 500 fund. And let's look at indexing, all right? Yep. Indexing will, depending on which study you read, be 70 to 80% 80% of your money managers out there. So you've got to be really careful about money managers and ripoffs that are out there. So that's a question, you know, because it's sort of, a, a, this is the question I have, you know, Vanguard funds or other um, betterment or other, um, there's a there's a number of these new sort of like low really really low cost absolutely um, index funds and then you've got your Merrill Lynch's of the world and I've heard that a money manager on average is worth you know maybe one or two percent above what you know you'll get with one of these index funds and they may be able to help you not panic but but ultimately their value they create for you hopefully is more than the fees they they take from you because they're paid on a percentage basis on the amount of um, uh, assets under management. So how much money you have in, you're paying a a fee. And and that's the question I have is, are they really psychologists during a recession? Is that their main function is just to try to convince people to stick with it? And if you if you could stick with it yourself, you might do better in a Vanguard fund. That's exactly it. You you just have have to be, have that courage to stick with it. Now, if you have a really good ethical manager and they can uh, rebalance your portfolio for tax purposes, there may be some advantage there. But even though I have a wealth manager right now, I have it all invested in uh, different index funds now. And I had a money manager for years. She used to beat the market. I used to look at it and she was a friend, okay, that I'd known from my dad's time. She worked for a company my dad founded and she had beat the market consistently for years. And then the last few years, I'd noticed, man, we're just not getting the returns we're supposed to. A couple of years, the S&P did 21%. I only did 11% that year. Well, 
at the amount of money I have invested, that's a six-figure multiple number missing the market by 10%, Gary. Right. So you're like, man, this, this is bad. Right. You know, I, I know I'm up, but I missed a multiple six-figure gain this year. So it alerted me to go back and really start diving in. And I looked at her numbers and she has not beat the, something happened in 2012 with her. She started missing the market every year. Something about her management style, something changed. So you have to be able to adapt and be ready to switch. If somebody gets a cold hand, the other thing I've noticed is, and I I don't want to bash anybody over the head here, but my personal view is this individual had some depression, most likely. And I've dealt, and this is a Mm -hmm. whole nother storyline for me, but one of my practice managers years ago that committed suicide had depression. And I've just viewed people that have severe depression as having trouble making decisions in the way that I might make a decision when I'm an upbeat, positive person. If you're constantly in a down stage of your life, I think you've got to look at these people and say, man, I love you. I care for you, but you shouldn't be in charge of this uh, money or these decisions because your life is skewed. Your thought processes are skewed because of this disease. So quick, another little bit of a side on the financial part of this, where do you see young physicians or maybe, you know, physicians in general making mistakes in their early career? And, and maybe that's the, the, the new car purchase, buying a home that they've always dreamed of, but maybe can't afford you know, not take not taking care of debts, but adding to the debts, or maybe not even managing their taxes in a in a smart way. What do you see as as areas where maybe physicians um, fall into traps? I saw a blog recently. The difference between rich and wealth. You know, rich means you're making more than the average person in the United States. Wealth means you're building an asset, right? Right. So you can't build an asset buying high-end Mercedes and Ferraris and living in big houses and buying expensive antiques for your house and spending a ton of time off at the country club. One of the things I've always done is I've saved between 30 and 50% of my salary on a year-to-year basis. And it's allowed me to build a fairly large real estate portfolio now of over 80,000 square feet of commercial real estate. Uh, The house is paid off. Whether that's a good decision or not, though, is another topic for conversation, whether you really want to pay your house off or not. Uh, But living within your means is so important, and you really want to invest in your practice, usually. Uh, Most of the time, your return you're going to get on your practice is probably higher than what you're going to get in the stock market as well because and you have control over it so spending the time investing in your practice investing in your own ASC uh, that is invaluable to setting yourself up for life and don't wait until you're 54 to start saving you've got to start doing this early in life when you first get out of school and start putting money away. 
Well, one, one thing I've done is I actually have um, a savings account set up and my direct deposit, I have an amount that goes directly into savings and I have an amount that goes directly into checking. And so the amount that goes into checking is obviously what we're going to live on. And, the, and I sort of pre-plan that I'm saving a certain amount. And so how did you, how did you come up with that 30 to 50% and how did you implement that? Was just, did you just move the money yourself or was there some system that helped you with that? Yeah, it, it was pretty much discipline in moving it myself, Gary. And the other way was I did have a number earlier in life where it was automatic $2,500 a month when I was at a different stage of my career. It just that part of the paycheck went into savings directly and part of it went into a SEP IRA directly. Right. But the big blocks of money, I just tried to look at the end of the year. We'd have cash on hand for the company. I'd do my faith-based tithing. And then whatever I had left over, I would not go buy stuff. All right. I would put it away. And that that leads into a different topic, you know, stuff. What does it do for you in life? All right. We can talk about that as well. If you look at. Let's do that. Yeah. So Warren Buffett doesn't have a yacht, right? He doesn't have a big house. Right. And I've listened to him uh, speak. He said, I have all the money. If I thought a yacht would make me happier, I would buy one. But I don't think it'll make me happier. I don't. I'm happy in the house I'm in. So one thing I've learned, I grew up a doctor's son. Dad had a Porsche. He had a Corvette, had a Mercedes. We had a bass boat. We later had a ski boat. We went on nice vacations. But one thing I've learned over the years is stuff doesn't really make you happy. There, if, if stuff's making you happy, you have an empty spot in your life. It's fun to buy stuff. You know, you go buy a new Raptor pickup truck or something like I did this past year. Oh, I loved it. You know, I still love the car, but that exhilaration of the new wears off in just a couple of days sometimes. It sure does. And then, then you have the maintenance costs that you, you start getting, okay, I have a house at the beach. I have a farm. Uh, I don't have the house at the beach, but I do have a farm. Okay. It costs Forty-five to fifty thousand dollars to operate that farm every year for hunting purposes. That's overhead, right? Then the four-wheeler breaks. You know, I've got to pay somebody to go down there and pick up the four-wheeler, and then the tractor needs a new tire. Somebody's got to come by and open the barn for the tractor repairman to come down and put it on his truck and haul it to Dixon, and all of this stuff ends up having a consequence to it. There's a weight to it. It's a weight, right? So another little tip probably would be when you get tempted to buy big boats, you want a King Air or a plane to fly in, you want a big vacation home, always remember, man, it is nice to lease, right? You can go down to the beach and lease a house and when you're over done with your vacation, you don't have to worry about the swimming pool pump, right? You don't have to worry about, is someone there trashing my house this weekend? Is a hurricane coming? Uh, did the second floor toilet get stopped up and flood? And now we have flood insurance issue. 
you know, it just makes it a lot easier a lot of the time to say, hey, I don't have to brag that I have this house or this airplane. If I want to go fly a private charter two or three times a year because it makes sense, I can do it. But I don't have to sit there and say, okay, I got to keep a pilot hired, right? I got to make maintenance costs and hangar costs and all this stuff just adds time and confusion and stress that you should be spending with your family or at church or doing things that really make a difference. Well, I, I feel the same exact way. And, and the, the thing about that is a lot of times people don't realize the emptiness uh, of, of possessing things until after they've tried it. And, and a lot of times we feel like, well, uh, I just haven't bought the right stuff yet. Not really realizing that before when you, you bought the thing you just bought, you didn't have, you felt the same way. And it's sort of this cycle where you feel like, okay, well, it's just, I haven't got the right stuff yet. And, and ultimately, you know, if you're making a good living, you, you have the opportunity if you want to buy really almost anything you want. And you do get to that point of, of realization that none of the stuff that we have adds much quality to our life. Uh, my partner, Lance Ferguson, he, he said, you know, all money does is it allows you to spend more quality time with the people that really matter to you so that you're not, if you have you know some, some assets built up, you're not a slave to your job. You have flexibility in your time and you, it allows you to spend more time with the people that you love and gives you flexibility. And I thought that was really interesting. That was an interesting perspective to have because a lot of people think that that wealth is really about you know adding things that will showcase uh, your achievements um, and 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 sort of decorating your life with with fancy things but ultimately we can't take any of it with us and I hope that uh, when when my last days are are here and 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 people remember me I really hope they remember me as being generous and and not someone who wanted to add to his own life but um, wanted to give more to other people's lives. It's an amen to that. Uh, you want to build everybody up around you. And I'll say this, you mentioned that, how do you want to be remembered? Once dad died, he was well known within the area. But if you ask people now, did you know Jim Loden? And people are like, uh, no, no, I didn't know him as a doctor. Don't Don't remember him, right? Really, the only few friends remember Dad. This was back in 1990, and everybody speaks favorably. But when you're gone, the really the only people that are going to really miss you, probably if you've done a good job, that is, is your wife and your kids and your direct family members, right? Right. Uh, I think of a dear, dear friend of mine who's a very famous retired ophthalmologist still alive. I'm not going to use his name. I don't want to embarrass him. I don't want to have permission, but I was, I trained the residents at UT and I said, do you know this guy's name? And he's a great friend of mine and he designed this and that. And they're like, no, I've never heard of this guy. And I'm like, holy cow, you've never heard of this guy. And none of them have, right? So our window of fame, whether we're on the podium or major inventors in our industries, our window of fame is really small and it's really insignificant. So it really doesn't matter in the big picture. Well, and I think about that too sometimes when I think about, should I go and do this speaking engagement 
um, somewhere. It's going to, you know, potentially take me away from my family. And, you know, I, sometimes I stop and think, why am I doing this? Is it, is it for the glory of it? Is it, is it for the ego? Is it because I love educating? And I think the problem with ego is sometimes we, it's operating in the background and we're not even aware of it, but it drives a lot of the decisions we make in a very subconscious way. And it's very easy to justify things um, for no, for nobler purposes, saying I'm doing this for you know the greater good of my profession. I'm I'm educating. I'm I'm giving back. When really sometimes it's it's really all about just trying to um, stay in the game or stay ahead of your peers or get that FaceTime or uh, publication. And you know, I've really over the past year or so tried to be fairly introspective about you know what is the motivating factor for doing certain things. Um, and, and I do enjoy, I, I enjoy teaching. I enjoy uh, lecturing and, and probably some, some of it, we all do enjoy that pat on the back or feeling like we're special. And I, I'm no, I'm not immune to that. It's how we're designed and we all fall into that trap. But I think it's, it can be especially destructive if you don't keep it in check. And I've seen, I mean, I'm sure we both have seen this happen to our colleagues sometimes when they almost um, being on the road becomes more fun than in than being at home. I mean, haven't you seen that? We've absolutely both of us have seen it, and I enjoy my interaction with my colleagues. But I realize in six to seven more years, when the kids are fully out of the house, Heather and I can go decide whether we want to restart that phase of my life again. Right. Right. Right, and I'm gonna hopefully if my health is good, I'm gonna have a over a decade to do that. Right, the time I have right now with my children, I'm never gonna get that time back ever again. Yep, I can't come back and reset that clock. I can come back if things work out in the future and reset that clock on. Do I want to dedicate more time to the business, or more time to the podium, or more time to FDA clinical trials? All of that will, ha- I'll be able to restart that at any time. Yeah, I agree. And my kids, you know, my daughter's graduating high school uh, tomorrow, actually. My son will graduate in two years. So I'm, I'm kind of in that, that phase as well, where I'm trying to spend as much time with as I can. Let's, let's talk about some, we've talked about finances a little bit. We've, we've talked about sort of material possessions. Uh, what are some other interesting topics you have that you want your, your boys to you know, to know about. Yeah. Let me just kind of go through a couple things and then I want to hit on dating a little bit too. Uh, yeah. Because it's such a big part of your kids' lives. And I wish dad had, and it's such an awkward thing for us to talk about, but let me just hit a couple bullet points, you know, that I've had. Are you going to give me the birds and the bees talk? Cause I'm. Yeah. Yeah, okay. man. All right. Good. Coming up. All right. Coming up. Stay tuned. Stay tuned for the birds and the bees talk, but uh, just a quick little pearl. Never do business with a small company owner whose spouse is an attorney. Every time I've gotten involved with a small company like that, uh, the if something it goes the least bit south, the spousal attorney threatens to sue you and they get to sue you for free. If you're going to go through a full lawsuit, it may cost you $200,000. So they can rip you off $20,000 really easy 
because they know you're not going to spend two hundred thousand dollars for a full press lawsuit to get your twenty thousand bucks back. Okay, great advice. Into that topic, ask yourself when you hire an employee after they work for you, would you hire them again? If the answer is no then you really should be exiting that person as you're thinking about this and starting to find someone who's really good to take their place. That's like the whole mediocrity should not be tolerated, really. Mediocrity just can't be tolerated. Employees that don't work out great after they've been recruited by a headhunter, you usually have, a, depending on the contract, six months to a year in which you can get a significant refund had a controller recently that exited after about 18 months with the company. It's six months. We we're like, man, I'm not sure this guy's going to work out. Well, it cost us $30,000 in recruiting fees. And it just six months after the 12 month deadline, he had self exited. We knew we had warning signs. We were chicken to pull the trigger. Always pull the trigger, don't be chicken uh, when something's not working out. The song, It'll Be All Right by Dean Lewis right now. I love the lyrics for boys that are going through breakups with girlfriends. In Nashville here, we've had two boys that have committed suicide, sadly, after breakups with their girlfriends. And no girlfriend or even a divorce is worth your life. Uh, God loves you and his love is enough if you can accept that. And the song says, it's going to be all right, mate. Life will go on and you'll find another, right? If all these young boys would have found somebody else within three to six months or a year in a worst case scenario, and they let it drag them down. So that's one of my pearls to my boys there. Failure is not final. I love that that whole idea. That's it. And, you know, in the book Outliers, uh, that that's one of the things they talk about. The billionaires that have succeeded, Gary, all of them have failed multiple times in businesses before they hit it right. Yep. And you have to be able to learn to accept failure. Uh, another one I've written about this. I've given some, I wrote an article on cataract and refractive surgery today. Everybody knows, and I've been very open about this. We had a major, major embezzlement financial issue with the practice three years ago. And the difference between forgiveness and harboring hate, it's just too much effort to hate. Hate destroys you. You got to get over it and move on. Uh, the world's not fair. The Bible even says it rains on the just and the unjust. The Bible says we're promised to suffer, but it's going to make us stronger. And we just have to learn to not be so caught up in getting back, getting revenge. We've just got to say, we're going to move on from this in life and we're just going to press on and we're going to, going to have the courage and fortitude to forgive 
And I'm trying to instill this in my boys when, yes, people are going to do you wrong. It's inevitable. And this is another fact I want to bring up. Throughout this process, I've talked with multiple auditors, forensic auditors, accountants, and uh, a couple of even law enforcement personnel and a clinical psychologist. And all of them agree on this term. I mean, these numbers, Gary, it's such a scary, sad number. 20% of people will steal from you all the time, even if there's a high chance that they're going to be caught. (sighs) 60% of the population will steal from you if they think they won't get caught and then and or if a need arises for them to steal where they don't think they'll get caught. Only 20% of our population in the United States will not steal. That is so important to realize. It's such a sad number, but you have to realize 80% of the people you meet on the street will steal from you. That totally changes your perspective on how you interact, how you loan money, how you protect your family, how you protect your business. These are the statistics I never knew. This is why I'm writing this stuff down for my boys is these are concepts that are difficult. You don't just find these. Nobody just walks up to you. There's not a class that you can take in college. There's no advisor that walks up to you and shares with you these numbers, you know? Right. So girls, let's get back to the birds and the bees, you know? I'm ready for the talk, Dad. I'm ready. Yeah. I mean, girls can be a real challenge. I was the nerd. I didn't really have – I had one date in high school, Gary, I'm embarrassed to say. you know. <laughs> and now I'm married to just a smoking, great, beautiful woman, and life's good, you know? You, you definitely outkicked your coverage with Heather. I, I outkicked my coverage with Heather. I did great on that. Uh, but – man, the behavior you have to have, you know, I want to counsel my boys. Nobody likes the loud mouth party boy drunk like the movies portray. Okay. Uh, I don't know that my dad ever, I mean, he went, we went to church, we went to Bible class together, but he never had that talk and said, man, just don't be a loud mouth drunk, son. My dad never really had that sincere conversation where he's like, son, don't be the loudmouth drunk guy, right? I mean, we had the Christian values instilled. I guess he thought I was supposed to learn it by osmosis, but as boys, we don't learn through osmosis, especially in our teen years. We're really concrete with our thought process. And a lot of, you just don't see the good looking girls marrying the guy that's the crazy big loudmouth, right? Uh, You, you, they want to marry the guy that's got it all together, peaceable, uh, fun, joking, has a has a good time, but not the loudmouth guy. And for a few years, I was a loudmouth guy. It's embarrassing to say. Uh, thankfully, I've left that phase behind, but I want to instill that in my children. Uh, we think about lust and how it affects marriages, how it affects divorce rates. Uh, It's going to be there, but I want to share with my boys, you know, lust 
dissipates after about two years. This is why you, you see so many marriages of all these Hollywood movie stars and folks last about two years and then it goes south. You see people bouncing from living girlfriend to living girlfriend every couple of years. The reason is, is that lust goes away and you have to be there and with the girl that is going to be there with you and be a partner uh, in your life. And I look back to, I didn't get married till I was 37. So have a few experiences, you know, you see girls that want you to be home at five o'clock. The guy that's home and doing stuff with them is the key word, right? Doing whatever they want to do. They want to have an unlimited budget. Right. They want to live in a big house, but they don't want you to be at work. Well, that that's not the girl you want to want to marry, right? She's the gold digger. Uh, you got to watch out for those. Uh, I went and. I think you have to look at the activity level of the girl. One of my sons is an athlete. He has a motor that keeps going all the time. He loves to, you know, do anything outdoors, race bikes, go water skiing, hit the lake, adventurous young man. He'll go at it. That child does not need to be hanging out with a girl that likes sitting around the house and watching TV, right? They're not going to be happy. You've got to be well-matched. But, you know, if I'm dead in a couple years, I'm going to want, I want my children to know what I'm thinking when they are dating someone here. And people want a, want a hardworking man. Even if you marry a smart, wealthy girl, she's not really going to respect you unless you're a hard worker. When you're in this dating process, nobody ever sat there and told me that when you're talking to their friends or their sibling, that that's basically an interview, right? That everything's going to go back to this girl. So if you want... Or their parent. Or their parent, right? So if you want to give a message, you tell it to her sister and you'd be pretty much assured that the sister's going to deliver the message you want, right? And... I never knew that. It's just one of those things that went over my head for right. much of my life. Uh, spend a lot of time with a girl before you marry them and with their family. And this is one of the storylines I have is I was just madly in love with this young lady. She was gorgeous. She was a pharmacist, uh, just beautiful gal, great personality. But then some things started coming up. I was like, man, I just, I don't know what's going on here. We were living in different cities. She didn't start taking my phone call every time I called. Yet she invited me home with her family. We went to church and I noticed, wow, no one talks to her family in church. And this is hindsight years back. You know, normally when you go to church and it's your home church, you go to church on Sunday and everybody's like, Jim, man, I haven't seen you in years. Where are you living now? Everything. Tell me about medical school. Tell me about, you know, you were living in Indianapolis last time I talked to you doing fellowship. How's life going? Never noticed any of that going on. So it, with hindsight, 
they weren't really engaged in their church family. That should have been a key for me right there. You know, just these observational skills. And then once the girl doesn't want to answer the phone, you just know it's going south, son. Don't don't have any fantasies, right? Uh, it's going south. And then it all really hit an epic peak when we were supposed to go on a trip together, went on the trip together. And I'm like, man, you're really acting weird. And she's like, well, I'm dating this other guy in Nashville. You're living in uh, Indianapolis still in fellowship. He's moving when I come back uh, about the time you move back to Nashville. So it'll be okay. And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know about that. I don't, I don't know about that. And I said, so I then just finally had the guts. I said, who is, she told me who the guy was. The guy was engaged at the time to another woman. And then I said, are you sleeping with this guy? And she said, yeah. And I just was like, holy mackerel, man. So I just broke it off right there on the spot, even though I was madly in love with this girl, because I said, this is not the person I want to be with the rest of my life. The narcissism that's here, the mental illness that's here to think that one, having an affair with a person who's engaged, in my mind, that's a rule breaker right there. You know, she's a potential homewrecker. She doesn't have the same value system I have. This is not going to work out in life. So you need to pick up on these cues and then just have the courage to break it up, right? And walk. No matter how bad you want to go back, don't go back. You just can't do it. I mean, you owe it to yourself. You owe it to your family and your future family. You know, you just don't want to be in a relationship of pain the rest of your life just because you were infatuated uh, at that period in that phase of your life. Well, Jim, it reminds me of, of the famous Kenny Rogers song. You got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them. Know when, when to fold them, baby. Know when to run, right? That's it. And, you know, the dating relationship is a lot like what Ritz-Carlton teaches you if you take the Ritz-Carlton course. Uh, it trains for hiring people with the right attitude. And it says you can't train attitude. You can train everything else, right? Right. But if you've got someone who just has a bad attitude in life, it's not going to work out. Maybe the best looking person I've ever dated, was, she was a model uh, living around Memphis when I was a resident there, about 5'11", blonde, absolutely gorgeous, but an unhappy person. After just a couple of dates, I didn't even want to be with her anymore. I, did, I didn't even call her back for another date, you know? And even though she's just looks on the outer side, outside to be this fantastic person, you have to look for this attitude that they're going to be there. They're going to be your partner and don't just get caught up in the physical appearances of life. You got to, you got to have someone who's going to be there with you when the chips are down Yeah, and uh, do the good and the bad. And you got to be well matched and you got to have someone who respects you and someone that you respect. And that's, I'll say this just for my relationship. Uh, I have so valued 
um, my wife because I respect her so much. And, you know, my, my job, I get a lot of glory with helping people see better and giving talks and those sorts of things. But the job that she does organizing our household and making sure that our children have everything that they need on schedule. And I mean, the, the multitasking, the things that she does, she is the real hero in our, in our household. I mean, I, what I do is, is nothing compared to what she does. And it, it's, it's one of those things where she knows I respect her. She knows that I view her as an equal and we're partners in this life. And uh, it's really something that I feel like to have a good marriage and to have a, a happy life, you got to have someone you're on equal footing with. You, it, it's got to be someone who you're best friends with. You can't just get caught up in what a person looks like or what their bank account looks like. That's right. That's right. Well, Jim, any parting thoughts before we wrap this up? This has been so fun. I mean, it's always fun to talk to you. We always laugh and carry on and, and just I enjoy our conversations. Any What, what are dad's parting words going to be tonight? Yeah, this is one I heard at the U at ASCRS, a quote. I can't take credit for this quote, Gary, but I'm trying to drive it home into my boys over the last couple weeks. People don't like you because of you. They like you based on how you make them feel when they are with you. And you think about that, and it's really the truth. Who do you, why do I like being with you, Gary, right? Like we were talking in the intro here. Uh, when we have dinner, we always have a lot of laughs. We have a lot of good times. We tell stories about our families, just like we've done for about the last hour here. And it's always great. But you look at people you don't really enjoy you don't like being with them. If they don't make you feel good when you're around them, you see people with a lot of power, influence, but you don't really feel good when you're around them. You don't even like to be with them. You're like, oh man, so-and-so is coming down the hall here, right? Let me duck down the other way or look kind of busy at my cell phone, right? Uh, so I have one child that's an extrovert and loves to go just walk up to people and talk. I have one though that's a real introvert and he's the older one that's the athlete, but I'm trying to coach him up a little bit here. Son, you know, you, you need to walk up to your friends with a big smile on your face and say, Hey Jack, how are you today? Instead you come walking up mumbling and looking at the ground. I said, that's not how you're going to make friends like you. And you, you know, people say, I don't have many friends. I'm like, well, when's the last time you had people over for burgers or something? You do have to invest a little bit uh, and you want to make people feel good, just like you like them making you feel good. So that'd be my parting thoughts of wisdom here. Jim, anytime you want to come back on and share more wisdom, you are always welcome. I, I look forward to uh, this as a book because I think you need to look at getting a publisher and I just, uh, I, I look forward to all the future conversations and dinners we're going to have over the many years uh, that we have together in this, in this profession and, and in this life. So thanks for coming on tonight. I really appreciate it. Fantastic. Thank you, Gary. Thank you to Dr. Loden for talking openly about what life has taught him so far and for being willing to share advice on so many topics, both personal and professional. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in for another episode. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Until next time.
Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast produced by Bryn Mawr Communications and supported by advertising from Alcon. For a full listing of podcasts for eye care professionals, go to itube.net forward slash podcasts. That's itube, E-Y-E-T-U-B-E dot net.